welcome to Deep in Scripture podcast. I'm Marcus Grodi, your host for this program. Uh, this podcast is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International. And though we've been doing Deep in Scriptures for many years, uh, we're introducing a new series of programs focused on what we're calling the hard verses. Each episode, uh, I will generally interview somebody who's a member of the Coming Home Network International, and they're going to talk about some verse that was hard for them difficult to understand, and then we'll discuss how their journey of faith in Christ brought them to a deeper understanding of that verse. Now this week, our guest is Pat Madrid, good buddy from down the road here. Uh, uh, Pat, welcome. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you. And you're a lifelong Catholic, and so uh, we might approach this a little bit differently today, but let me, you and I have had had a lot of time to talk about kind of the theory of this program, but... but, uh, what I found back when I was particularly a Protestant minister is that all of the Bible could be divided into three different kind of verses. There were those that I considered clear, those that I considered cloudy, mm-hmm. and those that I considered very stormy, a cyclonic. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were those verses that, given my tradition, seemed totally clear to me. John 3.16, for God so loved the world, mm-hmm. and and didn't... It never crossed my mind that particular verse had needed more explanation. They just fit self evident. They were self-evident. And, uh, but the second group of scriptures didn't always fit easily. I called them cloudy. Uh, and I would often receive questions from those, from parishioners. Mm-hmm. You know, Pastor, how do I understand this? How do I explain this verse? And once I came up with an explanation that fit, I no, no longer thought about those verses anymore as cloudy because, boom, I had the explanation uh, that would put that into perspective. But then there were always this other group of verses that I called stormy, and I did not have a clear way of explaining them. Now, from my background, Bible is infallible, inspired, mm-hmm. even perspicuous. So I, I believed that some verse in Scripture had to explain that. So usually I look for other verses to come up with an explanation of the hard verses. Sometimes I did, sometimes I didn't. And so there would be verses that either I intentionally or or unintentionally mm-hmm. never preached on, like yeah. John chapter 6 or... A little too inconvenient. Now, you're an apologist, professional apologist, which means you, most of your life, whether it's reading, writing, or speaking, writing, doing radio, television, is defending the faith. Have you encountered this phenomenon? Yeah, definitely. I I was sharing with you last time I was on your TV program, The Journey Home. Remember, I was sharing with you about the summer between my junior and senior year of high school. I was going out with this cute girl named Christy, and I loved hanging out with her family, except that her dad was a very devout Protestant man, very anti-Catholic. And so I discovered pretty quickly that the price of admission for me to go out with his daughter was that I had to sit down with him, and he would break out the Bible, and he would grill me on my Catholic faith. Now, you ask if I've ever gone through this. I'll give you two quick examples. Um, the first one was, I, I'll, I'll never forget how I felt when he said, now, in your church, Pat, what do you call priests? And I said, we call him Father. And he said, interesting. Then he opened to Matthew chapter 23, verse 9, and he quoted the passage where Jesus <laughs> says, call no one on earth father. And I didn't know what's, I was like, whoa. I mean, I, I didn't know that that was even there. And, I, and it caused a pang of doubt. 
And of course, the doubt in itself is not a problem unless it's left unattended. So I was able to discover the answer to that question that Jesus was not saying literally don't call anyone father because you've got too many examples of St. Paul, St. Stephen, other saints, uh, uh, apostolic writers calling people father or asking to be called father. Uh, for example, St. Paul does this in First uh, Corinthians chapter 3. So I knew and, and that. Of course, on top of that, we've got 16 gazillion children calling their dad father. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, if you want to get strictly literal about it. And I discovered, too, that, you know, so Jesus also says in, in verse 8, he says, call no one on earth a teacher, for you have but one, a rabbi, and then also call no one master, for you have but one master. And I realized, well, any Protestant minister with a master's degree would have to tear up the degree because he would be violating scripture if he... I didn't know it at the time when I was going out with this girl. But for me, that was a, a jarring verse, and it turned out to be very easy to to explain the answer to that. The second example that comes to my mind is also at the very beginning of Luke's Gospel, where the Blessed Virgin Mary quotes, or she, she says the Magnificat, and she says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Now, Christie's father said to me, now wait a minute, in your church, don't you teach a doctrine called the Immaculate Conception that Mary was sinless? I said, yes. And he said, don't you believe that she was sinless from the moment of her conception? Yes. Then he said, then why does Mary herself in Luke say that she needed a Savior? If Mary needed a Savior, what was she saved from if she was sinless? And why would she need a Savior if she was sinless? Now, that really rocked me back on my heels, because as a Catholic kid grown up in the Catholic faith, no one had ever challenged, no one in my experience, had ever, inside my little Catholic bubble, had ever challenged my understanding of this teaching of the Church until Christie's dad did. And that was another example of where I had to really go back home. My, I told my parents, I said, here's the latest argument. And luckily, thankfully, my parents had a lot of Catholic books in the library, including, you know, this volume or the multi-volume set radio replies, the, the apologetics work from the early part of the 20th century. So I found the answers, thankfully, and I was able to go back to Christie's dad and tell her, oh, by the way, I have the answer to that question. But there was a time early on when those, those verses and others like them really did shake me. And it wasn't until I discovered the answers that uh, they were bothersome to me. I, I remember thinking, well, one of the proofs that Catholics never read the Bible is because if they did read the Bible, then they would know that calling their priests as father is a rough thing, so they wouldn't do it. Right. You know, if they had read, if some priest had read that, he would not have called it the father. Right. And another one that stuck to my mind was. If they had read the Old Testament prophets where the queen of heaven was a bad thing, yeah. they wouldn't have called Mary the queen, queen of heaven. Of heaven. Right. Now, how do you deal with that? Because in a sense, the devotions of the church make certain verses more difficult yeah. for reaching out to non-Catholics. It's similar, I think, Marcus, it's similar to how Jehovah's Witnesses, they make note of the fact that the, the few places in the Bible where there's a birthday celebrated, it's always a bad thing. Therefore, they say you shouldn't celebrate birthdays. So they extrapolate from, for example, John the Baptist, St. John the Baptist being beheaded on the occasion of, of the birthday celebration <laughs> in, in uh, Herod's, Herod's uh, court. And that, of course, is the wrong way to approach Scripture. Rather than say, well, this has some bad connotation, therefore we, we can't have this. There's a logical fallacy called the post hoc ergo propter hoc fallacy, which is be, because this came before something, therefore it's the cause of something. 
And, and that, of course, as you know, is a, a wrong way to approach Scripture. So just as the Jehovah's Witnesses are incorrect in saying that because we see a bad thing happen on someone's birthday, therefore we shouldn't celebrate birthdays. In the same way, if all we had to go on were verses such as Matthew 20, or Matthew um, 23, verse 9, uh, where Jesus says, call no one on earth father, and if there were no other passages from which we could look to see, well, what did he mean exactly by that? Then there would be something to it. And that's what you and I are arguing for. And that's more of a global look at Scripture, so that rather than isolating a single passage and building a theology out of it, we actually see what does Scripture say in totality, and how do we see a harmony among those different seemingly contradictory passages that aren't really contradictory. Well, I know that since I invited you to join me on this program, that you've been spending weeks trying to pick out which verse you'd have hard, and you've done your exegesis, and you've looked into the Greek and the Latin and the Hebrew, and I I know you have. But what I prefer to do is, after you've allowed you to do that, I'm not going to allow you to use the verse that you chose. I'm going to throw a verse on you. You didn't know I was going to do it. Curveball time. So, uh, a difficult verse. And what I want you to begin with is, why is this verse hard for a great majority of Christians in general? Mm -hmm. And that's 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Now, let me read it. I'm reading from the the Revised Standard Version. When Paul writes, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Mm -hmm. Now, why would that verse... Because the point of this program is that some verses are hard for some Christians and not hard for others. Mm -hmm. But why is that verse one that would cause difficult conundrums historically for certain groups of Christians. Well, that particular passage can cause heartburn not only for many Protestants, but also even for some Catholics who may take a an overly rigorous position on what the Church's doctrine is of no salvation outside the Church, extra ecclesiam nulla salus in the Latin. And also, why don't I start with uh, the Catholic un- understanding of that? There has been, for as long as the Catholic Church has been around, so going on 2,000 years now, a very clear understanding that the Church is necessary for salvation, and that one cannot simply turn his back on the Church if he knows, or even suspects, that the Catholic Church is necessary for salvation, instituted by Jesus Christ, and still expect to be saved. In fact, most recently in Vatican II, I believe it's paragraph 14, if I'm not mistaken, of Lumen Gentium that says the same thing. Now, properly understood, that has to leave room for God's grace and his freedom, because even though we are bound by the sacraments, for example, the sacrament of baptism, God is not bound by that. So there are ways in which, known only to him, that God can and does, in fact, save people in ways that are outside of what's normal and typical for us in this life. That passage that you just quoted from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 can cause some heartburn there, because it says, well, he is the Savior of everybody— of all men, especially those who believe. And that would seem to suggest, well, so he's (laughs) saving people who aren't in the Catholic Church. And then to extrapolate from there to the Protestant world, it would be similar for them to say that, well, the only people who go to heaven are those who accept Jesus Christ and who are believers and born again and on and on. And here it says that he's the Savior of everybody, especially those who believe, so the born-again people. What now? I don't think this passage is as difficult as some might see it at first glance, and I'm sure, uh, in fact, I know that you're very aware of this, but here's one way to look at the passage that I think can help clear up this 
problem. Jesus is the Savior of all men. Jesus is the Redeemer of all men. Jesus is the Messiah for all men. Jesus is uh, all of those things to all men. He's the Good Shepherd to all men. But not all men accept Jesus in his roles as Messiah, Shepherd, Redeemer, and Savior. So whereas the Lord, by his saving death on the cross and his atonement, he extends sufficient grace to everybody, not everybody accepts it and cooperates with it, therefore it, it, it's not efficient in their lives or efficacious in their lives, um, although it is in the lives of some. So it seems to me that the easiest way to explain this would be similar to the passage that you quoted earlier from John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is for everybody. And this is in his capacity as Savior and Redeemer that the Lord extends this to the whole world. Not everyone receives it, though. So I think if we see First Timothy 4 from that vantage point, it becomes a lot less problematic. And, and an important aspect to recognize in interpreting any of these passages is that individual interpretation is what opens up the danger as opposed to understanding the Scripture within the wider tradition of the Church. So we can look at this, as you've just described it, who is the the living God, who is the Savior of all men, of everyone, especially those who believe. When we looked at it in the context of the teaching of the Church, the historical tradition of the Church, the rule of faith and understanding the mystery of grace— our separated brethren very often, when they get have a problem with a verse like that, it's because they're caught up in the either or, without recognizing the mystery of the both and. Right. You know the it's either God's grace or it's man's free will, and yeah. so you have Calvinists and Methodists at each other's throat. Because when I was a Calvinist, this was a hard verse because. I was at one point in my Calvinism to the point that the Indians of the United States all went to hell because they never had the opportunity to believe in Jesus because they never heard his name. And even though it wasn't their fault, tough luck. And that's taking, and many Christians still believe that. Yeah. Uh, Or, you know, they don't know how to deal with good people that have never been told the gospel. Yeah. So from our Catholic perspective, we recognize the both and, the mystery of what's intended the normal way but that the mystery of God is not held and, and locked into the right. normal ways. It's not, it's not um, circumscribed by those things. And as you say, we are bound by those things, but God is not. That reads into another passage. This is from Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20, where St. Peter says, First of all, you must understand this, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, because no prophecy ever came by the impulse of man, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What I find comforting in this passage is the reminder, number one, um, that my puny powers of uh, interpretation are insufficient for the task at hand. And what has to happen, as he identifies it here, is that there must be a place for the Holy Spirit to not just cause prophecy, but also to bring about correct interpretation of prophecy. Now, I don't claim that for myself. I've neither prophesied nor have I been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but the Church has. And the Church, Jesus said in, in, uh, for example, Luke 10, 16, he who hears you hears me, 
he who rejects you rejects me. So there is an emphasis on the part of Jesus that the Church does possess this special guidance that individual believers like yourself and I and I don't have. So it's within the, the context of the Church that is being guided by the Holy Spirit that we can navigate through some of these more difficult passages and not wind up with an erroneous conclusion. I remember the last time we chatted, Marcus, I'll leave it at this, you mentioned the Arian heresy and how easy it is for people, if they're not careful, to look at passages which seem to suggest that Jesus is inferior to the Father and therefore not God, which is not true, but if we listen to what it says in First Peter chapter 1, it says that it's not left to our personal interpretation. There's something higher than us. Yeah, another hard verse, for example, is an Old Testament passage, Genesis I mentioned it last week on Deep in Scripture, uh, Genesis chapter 30, one, uh, and I thought I'd have you talk about this too, about the story of Dinah, mm-hmm. when the, 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 neighbor, the neighboring guy rapes Dinah, yeah. and, and in the end, Shechem is his name, he d- goes to Jacob and says, I'd like to marry your daughter, make it right. Mm-hmm. And Jacob and his son say, well, we got a problem here, you know, you get to be circumcised first. And if you're circumcised first, then then okay. So all the guys in in Shechem say, okay, let's do it, and they, and they have little motives. did they know. Little, little. little. <laughs> <laughs> Although one would think they could at least guess what might what might await them. Little did they know. So three days later, when they're hurting for certain, then all Jacob's sons, well, not all of them, but a couple, uh, I think it's Simeon and Levi, I think, go and. And slaughter them all, and take their wives, and take their kids, and take everything. They can't do anything. But the key that verse, it's a hard verse, is the last verse in that chapter, in which Jacob says, you've messed up everything for us. Now what are we going to do? And the sons say, well, are we just going to let this happen? And the point being, Pat, the reason it's a hard verse is, how do Christians deal with Old Testament passages that, that, like that that seem to set up a law of retribution? Yeah. You know, how do you interpret it? Well, I mean, they felt justified because they raped their sister that they can go out and kill every man yeah. and take everything. So how do you interpret that verse as yeah. a Christian? <clears throat> I'm reminded of um, the arguments that are thrown at us nowadays by people who would like to, and, and we're successful judicially in in redefining marriage, who, who will say the same thing. Look, these, these Old Testament things are outdated. They're not accurate. They don't reflect current thinking. So why do we even cling to them anymore? This might be an example of that. As you know, the law of the talion, or the law of the talent, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, was the law in those days. It was permitted by God, just as the Lord Jesus said that in those days, because of the hardness of their heart, God also permitted Moses to allow for divorce. He didn't want it. It wasn't his plan, but he permitted it. I would see this as a similar provision, where an eye for an eye was the provision that was allowed. It wasn't the goal or the optimal, but it was allowed for the time. Uh, Jesus himself confirms this when he says, you have heard it said, or you have read that uh, an eye for an eye is the, the punishment, but I tell you, now forgive your enemies, do good to those who persecute you. So Jesus elevates us. I think that's the the only real way we can resolve a passage like that is to say, yes, that, that's how it was permitted then. But God, as the old saying goes, God loves, God loves me just the way I am, but he loves me too much to let me stay this way. So he's constantly bringing his people higher and upward, and that's what we see in the progression from the, the law of the Talon 
to Jesus saying, forgive your enemies. Yeah, if anything, that story, when it occurred in the history of Israel, um, is key because it's before David, it's before, yeah. you know, it's before, so we see that it's pointing forward to a time when we're going to need leadership. Yes. We're going to need a spirit-guided kingdom to help us understand these things. If it's left to us, I mean, you, uh, there are many Christians that say the Old Testament's outmoded, except the verses that have to do with tithing. You know, they'll go back and hang on those. But in fact, there's a one of my favorite verses in Leviticus, I wish I could find it now, is when a leader uh, has people in the congregation don't like him, and therefore he's justified to go out and stone the people because they don't like what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Well, how many congregations around the country would the leaders would be throwing stones at people in the congregation that disagree with them. Yeah. As all, it is, they just throw verbal stones. The, the, yeah. Right. So that the, all these verses in the Old Testament are pointing forward, justifying and uh, defending the reason why Christ will give us a church, why Christ handpicks men to be the new 12 tribes, the, tw- the new 12 leaders, and why our Lord promises to give them the Holy Spirit to help them remember everything he taught them yes. so that he they can decide the correct way to understand. Because at the time, the Old Testament scriptures were the models. Yes, That's why Paul says in his letters, that's why we were given these stories, so that we could know how God worked in people's lives. But they all point forward to the need to have the right teacher of scripture. So true. I I couldn't help but think as you were telling me about the passage with the the throwing of the stones. There's another great passage in Deuteronomy also. Um, and now I'm wondering, is it Deuteronomy or Leviticus? It's Deuteronomy. I believe it's Deuteronomy chapter 28, if I'm not mistaken. And that is where God tells the people uh, to when it's time to, to pay their tithes, um, that you go to the city that God has appointed and you shall give your tithe there. But if it's too far for you to go, then you shall take your tithe and exchange it for money. And there with the money you will buy wine or strong drink or anything else your heart should desire. And there uh, with your family you will make merry before the Lord your God. (laughs) I always love quoting that passage when I'm speaking to somebody who says that uh, beer and wine is forbidden in the Bible. I say, well, actually, no, it's not. So sometimes (laughs) the the Old Testament can be really helpful for some of those discussions. My Old Testament, my my, uh, seminary, homiletics professor used to love to collect bad exegesis so people you know he would listen to preachers who believed in the bible alone and then then he would hear how they dealt with the text and he was driving along the road one day listening to a a southern preacher actually and what he heard so so, you know set him laughing he had to pull his car off his side because the preacher was preaching about the leaven of the pharisees And and he was saying that jesus was warning the disciples, that they were not to be concerned about the leaven of the Pharisees. And the reason was because there's 12 yun. <laughs> you know, you can take a verse and yeah. make it say anything it's you true. want. If you, That's, that's why the scriptures alone, without history, without study, without scholarship, that's the point. Yeah. But even that isn't enough. 
you need to interpret Scripture. And the Bible, I, I quoted from First Peter chapter 1, uh, just a few chapters later, St. Peter says, he says that some people actually do twist Scripture, because not everything in it is clear and, and easy to understand, and some people twist it like they do uh, the other Scriptures to their own destruction. So it's interesting how the Bible contains a built-in warning about being careful not to misunderstand what's there. Now, a couple minutes left. I've been dropping verses on you, Pat. From your work over the years, can you think of a scripture that you remember as being maybe hard for someone that they later came to recognize its clarity once they heard it through the eyes of the teacher? Well, the one I had been prepared to speak about is in Romans chapter 11, and the context for this discussion was I was talking to an ex-Catholic by the name of Andy. This is going back many years now, many, many years. And Andy was a uh, a Calvinist minister. He was a pastor of a Calvinist Presbyterian church. And we were going on, we were talking on the telephone one day, and he was pretty anti-Catholic, I have to say that. And as an ex-Catholic, he was pretty anti-Catholic. And so he was talking about how you can't lose your salvation. He was talking about the perseverance of the saints. And I said, but you know, the Bible doesn't say that. And he says, well, show me where it says something other than that. I said, okay. And I quoted to him this passage from Romans chapter 11, uh, where St. Paul says, see then the kindness and severity of God. And and by the way, the, the context begins early in chapter 11, and, he, and it speaks about the Israelites as if they were a, a cultivated olive tree. And then it describes the Gentiles as wild olive tree branches that are broken off uh, and grafted into the area of the cultivated tree that the branches were snapped off. The Jews who lost their salvation, they were likened to branches that were snapped off because they rejected Jesus. And this is referring to specific Jews at that time. So he says, verse 17, but if some of the branches were broken off and you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in in their place to share the richness of the olive tree, do not boast over the branches. If you do boast, remember that it is not you that support the root, it's the root that supports you. You will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast only through faith. So do not become proud, but stand in awe. Now, this is the part that I quoted to him. I said, Andy, if God, verse 21, for if God does not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Now, I I said, this is clearly referring to people who have been grafted into Jesus. They're born again, so to speak. They are among the saints, they're among the elect. I said, can you be grafted into Jesus and not be among the elect, knowing his Calvinist theology? He said, no. I said, so he, this is clearly saying, now he, here's what happened. There was this long pause, and he said, what verse was that? And I said, that was Romans chapter 11, and I said, begin looking at verse 21. He says, let me go get my Bible. So there's this couple of minute pause. He goes and gets his Bible, he comes back, and there's more silence, and he says, I've read that verse a thousand times. I've never noticed that. And I said, I believe he's saying you can lose your salvation. And he says, I've never seen that before. Now, here's the, the sad ending to the story. This, this conversation happened 25 years ago. I looked him up on the interwebs. He's still a Calvinist. Now, I, I don't 
say that with any sense of, you know, anything other than just, please, Lord, may eventually. But for some reason, he hasn't made the journey home. But man, did that stop him in his tracks. And what was interesting was he had read the verse so many times before, and he never noticed something that, to my mind, is so clear in that passage. Yeah. Excellent, Pat. We've Love to have you back on sometime. We'll Thank do you. That. We'll, we'll have some other verses because I think this is such an important issue uh, because it does involve the salvation of souls. Yeah. As I, I, when I look back and I remembered how flippantly I, as a pastor, would pass along my interpretation of certain passages, difficult passages, but I would explain what they meant to my people and those well-meaning parishioners sitting there in the congregation trusted that their path, pastor had done his work mm-hmm. and so that their salvation was secure was secure mm-hmm. because of what I said and I look back on that mea culpa you know I realized that I am not pope I am not infallible and that I could take two passages to make him say anything in fact I remember one time writing a, an article on give me three passages on the start of a new church because you can take any three pure churches <laughs> yeah. and come up with something new. Sad to say, but that is true. But by the way, just as a, let me give you some hope and encouragement. You didn't know any better. And that's the saving grace. You didn't know. And now that you know, it's a, it's even more powerful that you can be trying to share this with other people who may still be in that same situation. Thank you, Pat. PatMadrid.com. Patrick Madrid. Patrick, I am so sorry. I've done it. How many times? You're into abbreviating things. I am. I'm sorry. (laughs) So it's patmat.com. No. (laughs) PatrickMadrid.com to get in connected with all the things that that Patrick does. So thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Uh, Just a reminder to those listening that we want to hear from you. You can email us at questions at chnetwork.org or leave us a voicemail question or comment by clicking the button at deepinscripture.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just a reminder, Deep in Scripture is brought to you by the Coming Home Network International, a network of Christian men and women who, in their walk with Christ, found themselves drawn to embrace the Catholic Church. Wherever you may be on your own Christian journey, we invite you to walk, to learn, to pray with us. Visit chnetwork.org to connect with us. God bless you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Deep in Scripture. See you next week.